previously on 51st. We talked about why statehood has been a particularly big deal in Washington this year. Sometimes when we talk about statehood, people wonder why we fight so hard for it. It turned out that D.C. got totally screwed. They got a little bit more than half of the money that all of the states got. A D.C. statehood bill passed the House of Representatives for the first time ever, and now it's on to the Senate. That's where it'll face a lot of challenges. This proposal is plainly nothing but a Democratic power grab. But then we got thinking, is it accurate to think about D.C.'s push for more representation as a new, unprecedented thing? And a historian told us, no, it kind of isn't. It's not that they never had the right to vote. It's that the right to vote that they did enjoy was then stripped away. If D.C. were to get statehood, it would be a reestablishment of a lost or a stolen right. I'm Michaela LaFrac, and from the producers of What's With Washington, this is 51st, a series about D.C.'s fight for representation. Today's episode, where D.C. came from and how the city's voting rights got left out of the Constitution. In order to understand how Washingtonians got into our current situation, there are two events you have to understand, a mutiny and a meeting. And funnily enough, both involve Alexander Hamilton. Let's start with the mutiny. The year is 1783. The Revolutionary War is pretty much over, and the U.S. is like, yay, independence, we did it. But there's these troops stationed in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and they are angry. They haven't gotten paid for their service yet, so they decide to march to Philadelphia. And they came to demand that they be paid what they had been promised. This is Kenneth Bowling. He's a historian of the American Revolution. So these Lancaster troops, they head into Philly where Congress is meeting, in the same building as the Pennsylvania state government. Alexander Hamilton is there too, and he's been trying to rally support for this brand new federal government. Spirits are kind of low after the Revolutionary War ends, and Hamilton sees these angry troops as a PR opportunity. When Alexander Hamilton, a member of Congress, found out that the soldiers were marching on the Pennsylvania State House, he got his friend, the president of Congress, to call an emergency session. The congressmen went into the building in, in order to claim that they were the subject of this demonstration. This was the ancient horror of the army, the military overthrowing the Republic. Hamilton thought, oh boy, this will really get the public to well up behind Congress. Hamilton's like, Pennsylvania government, please call up your militia to protect Congress. And the Pennsylvania government is like, Are you crazy? Do you think that the Philadelphia militia would take up arms against the men of the Continental Army who just won its independence? And he refused. So Congress stormed out of Philadelphia and adjourned to Princeton. This standoff is really important for the future of D.C. because afterwards, the word exclusive starts cropping up everywhere. Exclusive jurisdiction, exclusive legislation. Basically, people start saying that Congress needs exclusive control over the place it's located. Without that exclusive control, Congress is in danger. 
even though most historians today agree that this quote-unquote mutiny was more just like a protest. It wasn't as if they were going to take over and, and start, you know, cutting off congressional heads or anything like that. I mean, there, there was no real danger. It was more of a philosophical one. Chris Myers-Ash. He's one of the authors of a great book called Chocolate City, a history of race and democracy in the nation's capital. It was more of a underscoring their fears that this kind of thing could happen if we, if we create the situation. If we put up the seat of the government in a state, then this sort of thing could happen. And maybe it wasn't that bad in 1783, but it could get worse. It's a little ironic, isn't it? The Revolutionary War was essentially one giant protest against power. And then Hamilton and Madison and the other Federalists say, hey, now we need to shore up our own power. No more protests near Congress, please. But on the other hand, I do kind of get it. The Republic is still this little fledgling. It's the Founding Fathers' baby, and they're going to do whatever they can to protect it. You know, what if the state governor, for example, is not a fan of the federal government or has larger ambitions and wants to, you know, the governor wants to prove himself or, or, or in some way. Who knows? The, the capital, the, the seat of the national government should be independent. It should be fully under the federal government's control and not under the control of any particular state. And so that's exactly what the framers write into the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. They create a district, not exceeding 10 miles square, that will be the seat of government of the United States. And they say Congress will have, quote, exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district. And thus, the District of Columbia officially gets written into the U.S. Constitution. So that's event number one. For event number two, we're going to hear from George Derrick Musgrove. He co-wrote that book I mentioned, Chocolate City, with Chris Ash, who we just heard from. They met at the University of the District of Columbia. While I was at UDC, this this uh, white guy named Chris Ash came to the school. I saw in his bio that he had started a freedom school in Mississippi. Ash and Musgrove were some of the only young faculty at the time, and they become buds. You know, we we clicked, and I one night I told him this story about how I had been assigned the DC history class, literally on the first day of class, and I was I panicked, and it was a horrible semester, and the students, you know, had a, had a pretty good go of me, knowing that I didn't really understand the subject matter I was teaching, and I told Chris about this, and he we both thought it was funny, um, but then you know I sort of ended up by saying, God, I wish someone would write a good book about DC history you know, that I could have used for that class. And Chris is like really quiet. And then a week later, he sends me a, um, a book proposal. And their book was born. In Chocolate City, Musgrove and Ash write a lot about the next big event we're going to cover. It deals with how the district ends up here, on this particular spot along the Potomac River. But actually, Musgrove and Ash weren't the first guys to tell me about this event. Ah, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Burrs. That honor goes to the one, the only, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes, we're talking Hamilton, the musical. Everybody kind of got a little bit of what they wanted from the standpoint of the individuals who were in the room where it happened, which is going to haunt me for the rest of the interview. So for everyone who's seen it, remember that scene in Hamilton where Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton have a dinner party? Really? Talk less. 
It's 1790, and Hamilton is trying to get Madison and Jefferson to back his new national financial system. So far, they are not into it. Two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically opposed foes. Hamilton wanted the entire country to assume the, the Revolutionary War debts. The Virginians are like, hard no. We've already paid off our debts. We're not paying other states' debts, too. Meanwhile, Congress is fighting over where to put the capital. It isn't pretty. Southern states did want the capital in the South, the symbolic way to protect the institution of slavery. The Virginians emerged with the nation's capital. The capital was Hamilton's compromise. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room. You know, I think for the parties involved, it was a very fruitful trade. A strong banking system on one side, the southern capital on the other. Everybody was happy in that room. <laughs> In the musical, Alexander Hamilton is psyched. He says it doesn't really matter where the capital ends up. It's totally symbolic. Banking, on the other hand, now that's the important stuff for our new country. Except here's the thing that Musgrove tells me. The location of the capital really did matter. More than half the enslaved people in the U.S. at that time lived in Maryland and Virginia. And those are the very states that the Founding Fathers used to form the new capital district. They take a piece of Virginia and a piece of Maryland, and they make their new district. White landowning men are the only ones with voting rights at the time. And Musgrove says for the next 10 years, those white wealthy dudes just keep on voting like they always did. You all just vote the way you used to vote. District residents on this side of the Potomac, I'm in Shepherd Park, went to Bladensburg to vote. They essentially had representation in the national legislature as previous residents of Maryland who were on their way out. People from the Virginia chunk do the same. They go into Virginia and vote there. They do this for three elections. But then in 1800, things change. The ruling party loses miserably in the election of 1800. And the Federalists, the losers, are panicked because they really feel that the Democratic Republicans are going to come in here and destroy the country. So they, they pass all this legislation that sort of shores up federal power. And what they come up with is the Organic Act, which is a hastily put together piece of legislation. Um, there were debates about what exactly it meant for Congress to assume exclusive legislation, exclusive legislation. Aha, there it is. Exclusive legislation, more federal power. Plus, Hamilton and the other Federalists still remember that mutiny in 1783, which Musgrove reminds us was really not a huge deal. Calling it a mutiny is, is a bit of a misnomer, but they embarrassed them, right? So here's what's going on. Congress passes this law, giving itself all the power over D.C., and it is quite a long law. They go to great lengths describing how the court system will work in the district and how the area will be divided into little counties. What they neglect to describe is how residents will vote for their representatives in Congress, which basically turns out to mean they can't vote for representatives in Congress. And they just frankly never settle it because they want to rush the legislation through before 
um, you have the transition of power. Sorry, we thought we would have more time to come up with a solution, but we're out of time. So here's the Organic Act and goodbye. Because it doesn't provide a mechanism for DC residents to vote, in effect, strips them of the vote. And so how did they, re how did people react to this? They were pissed. I mean, they were genuinely angry. When we come back, a new boss comes in to try to fix the problem. Does it work? That's after the break. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Here's where we are. It's the beginning of the 1800s. People in Washington, D.C. have no representation in Congress anymore, but they can still vote for locals to run the city. Actually, they had three local governments, these three little towns within the district. It's also important to know that Washington is full of slave trading firms at the time. And Hamilton probably didn't think about this when he compromised over the home of the nation's capital. George Derrick Musgrove says that when D.C. was established, a lot of Northerners thought slavery was on its way out. When everybody signs the Declaration of Independence and a couple of years later when they signed the Constitution, um, Large numbers of Northerners honestly believe that slavery is going to die out on its own. But that's not what happened. In the early 1800s, D.C. is home to some of the most prominent slave trading companies in the country. Once the capital is here, um, within about 20 to 30 years of its construction, you have single firms uh, in places like Alexandria, shipping a thousand African-Americans per year down the river. Abolitionists in and outside of D.C. are watching closely. Some are genuinely morally opposed to slavery, and some think it looks bad to have the capital of a shiny new democracy filled with enslaved people. Abolitionists remind Congress of the whole exclusive legislation thing. Even though D.C. is in the South and it's surrounded by plantations and slave trading companies, Congress has the power to abolish slavery in the district. It should do it. Chocolate City co-author Chris Ash. Because Congress is fully in charge of the city, uh, it could end slavery or the slave trade in the city tomorrow. It didn't need to have to go through any state governments. Over the next few decades, D.C. becomes a magnet for free Black people looking to build new lives. For a few reasons. First, the slave traders based in D.C. leave. They want to protect their businesses, so they demand retrocession. Basically, their part of the district gets to merge back into Virginia. Second, Congress does ban the slave trade, and then they abolish slavery outright. And third, as the Civil War ends, formerly enslaved people migrating north stop and settle in D.C. 
for job opportunities and because the black community here is growing. Black voters gain the right to vote a few years after the Civil War ends, and they quickly become a powerful force in the city's local elections. Nearly half of all registered voters in D.C. are black men. Chris Ash again. First thing they do when they vote in February 1867, they vote out the racist mayor of Georgetown. Kind of sends this, this shot across the bow to say, this is a new day. In 1868, they elect an abolitionist, a white abolitionist, as mayor of Washington City. And then they start running for office. And by 1869, you have elected black elected officials from every ward in the, in the city. It's a completely unprecedented development in, in democracy, and certain, not just in the city, but anywhere. But it doesn't last. This whole process of, of, of extending the ballot to, to black voters, of broadening uh, democracy to more people, uh, infuriates white conservatives. These white conservatives didn't want black people to vote. They also didn't want poor white people to vote either. They're worried that if you allow poor people, white and black, if you allow poor people the ballot, what they're going to do is they're going to vote for people who will then loot the treasury. They will, they will then raise taxes on rich people, and they will take that money to enrich themselves and their, and their cronies. And so they believe that government should be reserved for the elite and the privileged. I mean, and this is what the founders of the, of the Republic believed as well. They were very worry, worried about what they called the passions of the mob. Perhaps it reminds you of a certain mutiny? They worried that, that this was going to create chaos. Uh, and what they saw in Reconstruction, in their minds, was chaos, right? You had black people making decisions about how to spend public money, right? And in their mind, that was their money, right? That was, that was money from the wealthy that was being taxed to go into public, you know, public funds. And then these, these undesirable people were, were deciding how to spend that money. They didn't want that. This is big. Black voters make up a huge portion of the city's registered voters. Because of that, people in power are questioning whether the city as a whole should have a right to vote. Sound familiar? Okay, this is where you need to meet a pretty complicated personality. Alexander Boss Shepard, also known as the father of modern Washington. To explain, here's David Fadul, D.C. native and the author of an excellent thesis project on D.C. history. Anyone who knows me knows that I could talk about D.C. statehood for many days straight. Fadul reminds me that at this time, D.C. is still made up of these three little town governments. And he says the little governments were having some cooperation issues. Boss Shepard pops in and says, hey, I have a plan that'll fix all our problems. Consolidate the three governments into one. He went to Congress and said, look, we have these three towns here. What if you combined all of them into one, t one city and made me the head of it? And they said, ah, fine. Shepard points out that there's all this political infighting and it's keeping the district from running efficiently. When you're in charge of a city, there's always going to be infighting, but they really m magnified it to make it seem like it was like a... a problem that could not be fixed. So Boss Shepard, motivated by white, wealthy male anxiety over how his tax dollars are being spent, 
He makes his move. He asks Congress to restructure the government, and they do it. The new, all-unified D.C. has a mix of elected officials and leaders appointed by the president. Boss Shepard sits on the new Board of Public Works. That's where the money is, so that's where he sits and pulls all the strings. Here's Chris Ash. And he got a, he did get a lot done, but he did it. He kind of operated on this ask for forgiveness rather than permission principle, and so, and he did all kinds of amazing things in terms of development. You know, he was he built a lot of roads, sewers, bridges, uh, planted trees, you know, installed lighting downtown. I mean, he did a lot of stuff that that later led to him being named the father of modern Washington. So he helped D.C. develop as a city. But in the process, Shepard spends way more money than he should have, like about $3 billion more in today's dollars. Angry Washingtonians blame Shepard and his corruption for this budget problem. But they also still blame black voters, who they say aren't smart enough to elect good officials. Congress agrees on both counts. Congress looks into it and says, whoa, you know, what have you done? You know, you basically just, you know, you blew through all this money. The city is bankrupt and we're going to we're we're going to punish you by basically by taking away uh, the right to vote because you all have ex- exercised it so poorly. We're, we're going to strip the whole city, white voters and black voters of the right to vote. And Congress is going to take control again. Whiplash. Just three years after Congress created this new government for D.C., it seizes control again and removes every last locally elected official. D.C. residents lose their right to vote completely, 100 percent. Fadul sees this as one of the first big examples of Congress blaming black residents for D.C.'s problems and using that to justify taking away voting rights. So it was essentially a short experiment in democracy. It was taken away by, you know, Congress's view that the city was too corrupt, too corruptly managed. And um, black people were blamed a lot for the mismanagement, even though Alexander Shepard is a white man. That confrontational nature with Congress and the view that outsiders we're constantly trying to interfere in our local affairs, because they are. It started a long time ago, and those attitudes didn't just, they don't disappear. They are, they're ingrained deeply in the, in the view that DC residents have, viewing Congress, which at that time was all white, as um, kind of imposing its will on a majority black city. In the late 1870s, lots of white people in D.C. don't push back against this new setup, even though they can't vote anymore either. They still have other ways of swaying Congress, through personal connections or dinner party conversations. Much easier to deal with than having to run elections and, and deal with voters. Black voters. Also, there was a lot of money in this new plan. The federal government would pay 50% of the D.C. budget. On the theory that much of D.C. territory was taken up by federal government buildings and therefore not subject to local taxation. There were, there were added expenses of being a national capital. The federal government promised to pay 50% of the city's budget. 
This whole arrangement was supposed to be temporary. Kick out the leadership, take control for a bit, fix the finances. But Congress made it permanent four years later in 1878. Then it would be almost 100 years before we would get any local autonomy again. And that was it. You know, D.C. voters were out of luck, uh, really, until the civil rights movement, until uh, until D.C. won back the right to vote in, in the early 1970s. So after that century-long debacle, how did Washingtonians regain the right to vote? I mean, it's, it's important because it is the first major American city with a majority Black population in the country. You get to enfranchise them? I mean, that, that's exciting. That's literally what they've been doing for the last five, six years of their life. That's next time on 51st. First is produced by me, Michaela LaFrac, and senior producer Ponce Rutch. Additional production comes from the WAMU podcast team, Ruth Tam, Patrick Fort, and John Clinton Hill. Mike Kidd mixed this episode. Our chief content officer, Mona Cashfee, oversees all the content we make at WAMU. And if you're as excited to talk about DC statehood as we are, hit that subscribe button right now, and then go take a friend's phone and subscribe them too while you're at it. We'll be back next week with another episode of 51st. Thanks for listening.